Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Thanks, David. Well, shalom. I've known David and Elizabeth almost since they got married. And so, he always seems like such a younger guy to me. Don't you think you have such a young rabbi? Uh, thank you for the wonderful worship. That was great. I'm all worn out now, though. But I'll, I'll try and, and do my best. Um, so I was going to uh, wish you a uh, happy, uh, almost uh, lamb selection day. Is that a good messianic interpretation? Okay, for those of you who read Exodus 12. So it's a, uh, on the 10th day of Nisan, the lamb was selected, right? And then it was watched carefully. And then on the 14th of Nisan, that's it. And the blood was smeared on the doorposts. And firstborn males like me got to live. <laughs> and uh, so I hope everybody has uh, Passover on the brain. And uh, so, but make sure you read John 11 and 12 uh, sometime tomorrow so that you could come to grips with the, what they call the triumphal entry which wasn't very triumphal since he came in on a donkey. <laughs> it's a different twist to the triumphal entry, isn't it? And, uh, but it is uh, Lamb Selection Day. I think the 10th of Nissan begins tomorrow night. And uh, so uh, get in the mood because Pesach is in the air. I can almost smell the matzah baking. <laughs> and so in that, I'm sure Passover will be well handled at Eitz Chaim, I don't know how many seders. I'm looking out at the crowd. You know, it looks like about 50 seders coming. And uh, so, you know, there's been a run at your local grocery store on walnuts and, and apples. And although my wife does make the best haroset in the world, just so you know. If you read the chosen people stuff and you see recipes for haroset, it's my wife's. Okay. The matzo balls are my grandmother's. It's a lost art. Uh, so this morning, I'd like to talk to you about uh, one of my, uh, I'm going to quote from one of the major uh, Jewish prophets, um, and uh, his name is Robert Zimmerman. You know him? Major Jewish prophet. And you thought it was Yohanan Hamat Beel, John the Baptist, huh? Well. Uh, I, I have this sort of interesting relationship with Dylan. Uh, of course, I loved his music, and he was the inspiration for my guitar playing. So I'm about as good as he is. <laughs> and, uh, but when I was uh, living in San Francisco in the early 80s, that's 1980s in case you know, some of you don't know that. When I was living in the early 80s in San Francisco, which is actually where I, I became a believer in San Francisco, though I'm, I'm born and brung up in New York City. Forgive my English. So we got a call. I was with Jews for Jesus at the time. And so we got a call from someone who said he was Bob Dylan's manager. We said, sure. And we had heard rumors about him coming to the Lord and all that. And uh, at that time, and you can only imagine, you know, it was like, like Jesus himself was coming. And 
And so we said, if you have six tickets on, at the will call desk at the Warfield Theater on Market Street in San Francisco, if you do, uh, then we will watch the concert. And what they wanted us to do was to write a gospel track and to hand it out. Bob wants you to write a gospel track and hand it out. We said, sure. So we went to the will call desk, and it was there. So we got six tickets. We paid for it. We, I watched this first of 10 concerts, and you can see it on YouTube, uh, uh, the uh, Warfield uh, Theater concerts of, of Dylan. People were booing because he was more electrified in that. That's for you Dylan Mavens. So he was, he was electrified, so people didn't like that. Then he began, he really began with his, his, his Christian stuff. <laughs> You know, and I think, I, I don't know how long my jaw was dropped, but I don't think I closed my mouth for about two hours. As I listened to it, began with Regina McCrary, who was a pastor's daughter, who got up and said, Jesus got your ticket, just get on board. And she was only 18 years old, belted it out, and it was absolutely wonderful, but I thought, well, why wouldn't Dylan, Dylan likes gospel music, so it's sort of gospel music. Then, of course, the rest of the concert was Dylan singing gospel music, and that was unusual. And so we went back that evening, and uh, we banged out a track called The Times They Are A-Changing, and we built the whole gospel out of Dylan's lyrics, pre-Christian lyrics. Now, it wasn't easy, but we were creative. And then we began handing them out, and it was it was really fantastic, and we did it for 10 nights, and I was uh, telling David the other night, last night, at, at the second night, uh, this curly-haired guy uh, came and said, I'd like to talk to you about all this. And I said, sure. He said, sit on my car with me. We'll talk. I said, okay. So I, I never sat on a Rolls Royce like that before, but that was fun. Now, you may not know who this guy is. You might know the other guy, but his name was Bill Graham. And he was a rock promoter. And if those of you who are old enough to remember, uh, he ran Fillmore East and West, New York. I mean, he, he, had, the, he had, you know, all, all the rock music of those days sewn up. And uh, he was a Polish-Jewish guy born in a displaced persons camp and was probably, at that time, one of the number one contributors to Chabad. And so uh, I knew who he was, and I didn't know where this conversation was going. He asked me a very sincere question. He said, when in the world is Bob going to stop? I said, stop what? He says, shoving it down my throat. I'm cleaning this up for you. And of course, I said, I hope never. And so he laughed, and I said, OK, we're on. We're Lonsman. You know, we can talk to each other. And so I began sharing uh, my faith with him. And he, he said, this is really helpful because I have no idea what he believes. Probably at that time, Dylan had no idea what he was believing. And, and so we went through the night. And uh, anyway, uh, that whole incident, I wrote up in some kind of newsletter, got picked up by a guy, and he put it in a book. And then people started thinking that I was the Dylan expert on his faith, <laughs> which I was not. But I gladly took the role. Dave, the BBC Scotland even asked me in New York to come to their studio on Dylan's 70th birthday to talk about his faith. I said, sure. <laughs> and, but I believe 
at least at that time, that his faith was incredibly authentic. And if you listen to some of those two or three of his, of his early albums when he was more out there as a believer, Regina, who I kept in touch with, uh, we got to be friendly, said that, oh, yeah, he's still a believer. I said, okay, I hope you're right. And uh, I'm not with the group that said because he bar mitzvahed his son at the Welling Wall, he's obviously not a believer. You understand that. It's a very Jewish thing to do. It meant that Bob was a Jewish believer. If I had sons I, and the money, I would have done it too. You know? And so we don't know. But he, he framed the gospel in such a magnificent way. And I wish I could uh, play the whole album for you, but I just want to land with one quote. Next slide. So Dylan said, and he, and he returned, like a thief in the night, he'll replace wrong with right when he returns. Believe that? Man, we need that, don't we? Will I, will I ever learn that there'll be no peace, that wars won't cease, till when? Until he returns. Of every earthly plan that be known to man, he is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. You tell me that man wasn't a believer when he wrote that. How do you write something like that and not know Yeshua as your personal Messiah and believe in his return? This morning, I'd like to talk to you about sharing the gospel, but I've got to link the sharing of the gospel with the motivation to share the gospel, and I absolutely believe that the greatest motivation for us sharing the gospel is because we believe that one day, very soon, Yeshua will return. In fact, all throughout the Brit Hadashah, the second coming of Yeshua is actually linked to motivation for evangelism, for our witness. See, the, the future that God has planned for mankind is absolutely unstoppable. You realize that? I mean, we look at the things happening in this world and we say, when will it ever end? Well, I don't know, but it will. You can take that to the bank. The future can be frightening. But if we know the Lord and we look at things through the lens of Scripture, the future not only is not frightening, but the future motivates us to live a certain way in the present. The Savior actually calls his disciples to live today in light of tomorrow when he returns. And so we're going to look at what is usually called the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And we're going to link Matthew 28, 19, and 20 to the second coming. Because when he returns, it's too late for the Great Commission. It's too late for my family. It's too late for your family. It's too late for our friends. So we need to get with it now. Because the future is upon us. Now... I love telling stories of when I was a, a young believer. You know, I guess that's what happens when you get older as a believer, you know. 
And I really appreciate the 40 years in my press release. Unfortunately, it's 50. But the, it hasn't been edited in 10 years. <laughs> but I'll take the 40. You know, when, when you're younger, you know, you're like six and a half, five and a half, you know. Right now, I won't admit I'm 70 because I'm not, I, I still have a week. <laughs> so I go in very small percentages. You know, so it, it, it comes and goes, those percentages, you know. But I remember when I was a young believer, I came to know the Lord when I was 19 years old. And if you ask me, Mitch, where were you to, would you have been before you accepted Yeshua as your Messiah? No, because I come from a nice middle-class Jewish home in New York City, a bunch of professionals, except my father. He ran a clothing store. <laughs> and good Jewish business in Brooklyn. Is that, can you be more stereotypical than that? <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. And, and so if you ask me where I'd be without the Messiah, people like to think that I would, you know, be some kind of professional, this and that. I usually like to give a straight, honest answer. I'd be dead and in hell. Because that's the truth. I, w I don't think I would have made it to 20. I was a very bad boy. And the Lord preserved me and saved me and changed me and turned my life around. And I fell incredibly in love with Yeshua. And it was the middle of the, I call it the Jewish wing of the Jesus movement. So it was in the middle of the, of the Yeshua movement. <laughs> and everybody knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow. I mean, there was no delay. We had discussions among ourselves. So you think you'll ever get married? <laughs> no way. I mean, you know, he's coming back. You know, you, you, you're going to go back to college? Because we all dropped out. So you're going to go back to college? Are you kidding me? Four years? We won't even make it a month. You know, we were so sure that he was coming back. I mean, we had to, we were on a second coming hair trigger. <laughs> so um, I was involved in all these different things. And, and then somehow I ended up enrolling in a Bible college back in New Jersey where my mo mother and father were living. Anybody from New Jersey here? One. I'll talk slower. Sorry, I had to use somebody. <laughs> and so I went back uh, to New Jersey, and I, I wish I could tell you the, the whole story, but I told my parents the really good news that I was no longer doing drugs, but I believed in Jesus. Every Jewish mother's dream, you know? <laughs> uh, from the frying pan into the fire. But my hair was shorter. I thought she'd like that. Anyway, things didn't work out at home. I was probably a little too, I told my parents they were going to hell. I, sh I should not have done that. I, I, know, I know now that was probably a little, little too strong. And anyway, so uh, my mother threw me out of the house again. And, and I went to live with my uh, Gentile ex-Catholic friend who lived in New Jersey, who was a new, he was part of the Gentile wing of the Jesus movement. And, uh, and so I moved in, and, you know, he was a good boy from New Jersey, so he knew how to do a lot of stuff. You know, I mean, the last great Jewish carpenter was you-know-who. I mean, really, would you call a Jewish person to be your carpenter? Uh -huh. Anyway, so uh, he was a roofer, and uh, my parents were not exactly going to put me through Bible college. I don't know why. <laughs> and so I went to work for my friend, and this is what happened before I put my foot through the roof. 
and he fired me. And so I was on the roof. It was dusk in New Jersey, Somerville, New Jersey, if you know where it is. And I was looking out. Uh, well, I, wouldn't have, I never would have lasted as a roofer because I was kind of afraid of heights. But flying three or four million miles has cured me, you know. But, but I was looking over the roof, and I was on such a second coming and rapture hair trigger that I saw him. And it, wa it wasn't a vision. It wasn't a dream. He was there, lit up in blue and white lights, which I had never read about in the Bible. But then again, I was not that familiar with the Bible at that time. And he was suspended between heaven and earth. And I tried to get my friend Gordon to come over and look, but I couldn't speak. I said, ah, mm, mm, you know, and, you know, but I wasn't quite over the roof because I didn't like the height, so I was a little beyond it. And so he starts walking towards me on the roof, and he looks down and looks around, and he says, come here, just take a look at what you see. I said, I'm not looking down there. Are you kidding me? I said, besides, we, he's coming. And the problem was is I didn't know what to do because I hadn't been to Bible college yet. In fact, I'd never been to a church yet. And there were no Messianic congregations. So I didn't have many options. And so I didn't know what to do. I figured maybe one day I would learn, like if the rapture's coming, do you wave? <laughs> I mean, we didn't have GPSs. How is he going to know where you are? Have you thought about that? Okay. <laughs> and so do you shout? Now, the real problem is, is I don't know how it's, he's going to lift us up, so I don't know if I have to jump a little first. <laughs> so, okay, D David will go over all this with you, okay, before it happens. So just think about it. And so Gordon said, just look over the roof. And I looked over the roof, and Jesus was attached to a Catholic church. <laughs> Big statue on the roof, you know, kind of blue and white. I was cru I'm still crushed. <laughs> I was, I have PTSD over the whole thing, you know. And, but the problem is, is that over the years, that holy expectation and that urgency tends to get worn down because of the circumstances of life. And we are good boys and girls. We're good Messianic Jews and we're good Christians and, and, you know, and and we, we obey the Lord, and we serve the Lord, and we come to congregation, and we, we do all the right things, you know. But, but most of us are not really aggressively looking forward to going to be with the Lord. There's always a few, I know. And you're weird. Okay? But we need you <laughs> to remind us. And, but isn't that where you want to be? I mean, Really? I mean, is there any place in the Shah where it says, don't worry, the Lord's going to come sometime in the distant future? You know, it, that's not the message of, of, of the New Testament. The message of the Shah is he's coming any moment. Any moment. Imminent. Urgent. Don't, don't, don't let the oil drop, drip out of your lamp. Keep it full because... He's coming. And I believe that because we've become a little lax about the expectation of his coming, we've become a little lax when it comes to evangelism. How's that?
And if we can juice up our honest to goodness faith and belief in his soon return, then that would help us be motivated to bring the gospel to others, wouldn't it? Well, the uh, Great Commission is a, a, a great passage, and uh, we're going to look at it. Uh, but just before we look at the text itself, uh, let me read it, and then we're going to look at, we're going to go a little bit backwards. So we're going to look at the end of it and then go backwards. It's okay. I'm Jewish, you know, right to left, everything back. So, so um, but let me read the whole thing from the beginning. Everybody thinks it starts at 19 and 20, but it really starts at 16. I just didn't want to put that many verses up, okay? But the 11 disciples, you know what happened to the one. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Yeshua had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Yeshua came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Here's the end times part even to the end of the age. Now, it's just, you know, just a couple words. But the whole rest of the Great Commission rests on the last statement. Now, we live in an age, can I use a big word? Because I love using it of adults, because every, all of us use it of kids. But we're a bunch of narcissists at times. Let me be honest, okay? When you look at a photograph of a group, who do you look for first? Thank you for being honest. Okay? So you know who you look for. It's either your, your kid or you. <laughs> and we tend to see things in a self-centered way. And so when we read the end of that verse, we say, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. We don't really much care about what the end of the age part is. We care about him being with us. So we believe God put that verse in there so that we can be assured of the presence of the Lord until he comes. Now, that's true, but that's not the whole point to this. It's a very, very important statement. And the reason it's important is because you have to do a little bit with the translation. And so the, the word end of the age is rather abrupt, isn't it? So I'll be with you until the end of the age, and we think of that as the second coming, or if you are right in your theology, you believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. <laughs> Listen, don't feel, don't worry about it. Give me your name and your address and your GPS coordinates. If, if I am right and you are wrong, I'll grab your hand on the way up. No problem. I don't want the congregation to split over this. But a better translation of the Greek word suntelia is consummation. The end of the age is the consummation. It's the conclusion of the age. And it refers to the end time events that have yet to take place, that haven't happened yet. And it's not just the second coming of Yeshua. It's all the stuff that comes before that too. So it refers to the many events that occur or are attached 
to the second coming of the Messiah. In Matthew 24, verse 3, Yeshua was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He then goes on for like 10 verses. So if it was just the end of the age is me there, but what are the signs? You know, what's going to be happening? And you know it, famines and pandemics and wars and rumors of wars. A nation will go against nation. There'll be false messiahs. There'll be judgments. There'll be all sorts of things that are happening. You have to read the Hebrew prophets, and then you have to read especially the book of Daniel, and you have to read the book of Revelation, and you can figure out there's a whole lot of stuff happening that's attached to the second coming of Yeshua. So it's not going to be boom. I'll be with you until the end of the age. Rather, what he's saying is, I will be with you through all the things that are going to happen because some of them are going to be pretty terrible, and I'm going to be with you all the way through to the end, to the very end. And he's referring to that period which we always call the last days or the end of days. Now, I believe that he was referring to even a lot of the details of the Olivet uh, Discourse. Now, I think at this point in the life of the body of Messiah, even in the Messianic movement, we tend to now dismiss or ignore end-time prophecy, and I believe it's at our peril. How are we supposed to be prepared for what's to come if we don't really take an interest in what's to come? We. We need to understand the events which will ultimately wrap up human history. Uh, studying about the end times, the fancy theological word is eschatology, which 60, 70% of you know. The rest of you are like me. Who cares? But, but the, we have been turned off to prophecy and end times because of so many people who are eccentric. And they start setting dates, and they do weird charts. And they speculate about the end times in ways that embarrass us. Listen, I was preparing a, a, a lecture one time, and I found books, books about Mussolini being the Antichrist. He wasn't, in case you, <laughs> just in case some of you were wondering. We can do a better job preparing for his return if we know what to expect. And as we see those signs coming, our engine, in terms of carrying out the Great Commission, will be revved up. I'm convinced that the reason the Lord doesn't tell us exactly when he's coming, which, because he could have, if he, he could have just asked. And so it, he could have told us exactly when he's coming, but if he does that, then all of us will make it like uh, the final exam in, in school and will actually hold off on certain areas of holiness and then cram for the test. He doesn't want to tell us because he wants us to always think about it. Prophecy, biblical prophecy is important because if you follow and study biblical prophecy about the end times without being cynical, without being eccentric, without being weird, but just study it, you will see that there's a lot to learn. Some of it is even understandable. And if you learn it, 
and live it, then you'll do more when it comes to the Great Commission. Uh, there was a little article by Chuck Swindoll. Do you know who he is? Yes. He lives here, I think. Frisco, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, he's in his 90s, I think. He's going strong. So he wrote something about Bible prophecy I thought was pretty cool. He said, one out of every 30 verses in the Bible mentions the subject of Messiah's return or the end times. Of the 216 chapters in the New Testament, there are well over 300 references to the return of the Lord. 23 of the New Testament books mention his return. Yeshua, that's my word, himself often spoke specifically about his own return. Throughout the centuries, his disciples and followers have adamantly believed, written and taught, that the Messiah would someday return to earth. The Bible teaches it. The Lord himself stood upon its truths. The apostles declared it and wrote about it, and we need to believe it. So understanding some of the details attached to this consummation period, the signs of the times, is real important. Yeshua had the end of the age in mind when he sent his disciples out to make fellow disciples all over the globe. It is his return to judge the earth and deliver the faithful that motivates us to do evangelism. That's what motivates us. I'll show you another illustration of it. I remember, uh, I mean, and a lot, of, a lot of us probably have Jewish mothers, so Jewish mothers are a little hard to reach sometimes. And my mother particularly was. She was tough, raised very orthodox. Uh, my grandmother never ate in our home. She always brought a paper bag of food. You know, we could never be kosher enough. So my mom was raised that way. So when I told my mom I was a believer and did make some mistakes, I begged her for one opportunity to tell her about the Lord. And she says, you've got one opportunity. You better make it good. <laughs> she was not easy. And so I was competing with Johnny Carson that night as she was sitting in the chair, falling asleep, and I read her Isaiah 53 because I, I, I was firmly convinced, and I was a believer for at least five months, so I, I knew a lot. So, so I read her Isaiah 53, and I knew that if she understood it like I understood it, she'd become a believer, my father become a believer, my sisters would become believers, and my grandmother would be ticked at all of us. And so at about verse 10 of Isaiah 53, she fell asleep, so I woke her up and I said, Mom, this is really exciting. You got to hear it. She said, it sounds a little like Jesus. I said, right. She said, I told you not to read the New Testament. This is real. I said, that's not the New Testament. That's why I wrote the little book. I said, it's not the New Testament. She said, well, it sounds like it. I said, Mom, that's the point. She says, I don't care what the point is. You've had your chance. That's it. Now, that, that went on. My mom was hard. I mean, that, that went on for 35 years. She would never talk to me. Then finally, one day, of course, she announces to us she's got stage four cancer, colon cancer. And everybody begins praying. And then what seemed like a lost cause, all of a sudden, became desperate. And I am grateful for the people that prayed for me because... My mom needed the prayers, but I needed the prayers because I was so fed up with trying to talk to her about the Lord. I hadn't tried in 20 years. We just skirted around it a lot. I mean, you know, there wasn't much to say, and she wasn't listening anyway. 
So it's kind of hard. But I really got excited by the desperation. And then somewhere in the middle of it all, I started getting some hope. And then somewhere in the middle of it all, I started getting some faith. It's when we sense the urgency of either the Lord returning or us going somewhere or our friends being sick. Haven't you experienced it? You know, when you get that phone call or text or email from a friend or a family member that says, I've got bad news for, about what the doctor just told me, then all of a sudden we become desperate. Thing is, we should be desperate all the time. That's the point. And so if we understand the Lord is coming, then we get more desperate to preach the gospel. All of humanity is on the clock. We act like we have all the time of the world, but we don't. Um, you can look out and see that some of these prophecies actually are already in play. So when people ask me, you know, where are we in the course of end-time events? I say, well, you know, I don't know for sure, but I think we're somewhere close. Now, have you, have you ever looked at an El Al commercial? Did you notice they were going to Israel? Did you notice that Israel shouldn't be there because they wasn't there? The prophet said... Ezekiel 36, verse 22 and following. Just read it. The prophet said that in, in the last days, Israel will return to the land, right? And I happen to believe that when they're in the land, that's when they're going to repent. Now, is Israel back in the land? Is this the fulfillment of prophecy? Okay, some, some of you are not so sure. It is. Because Israel was to come back in unbelief, not belief. Have you been to Israel? You know, the majority of Israelis are not followers of Jesus. Did you know that? They're not followers of, I mean, maybe Buddha, more followers, you know. Some kind of new age something. So Israel is a sign of the times. But then you look out and you see other things. Wars and rumor of wars, Pandem pandemics. Do you know that the Greek word for pandemic is actually used in Luke 21 of the end times? It's used in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, but people are not sure if that Greek word is in the original autographs. It has a footnote to it. But no footnotes on the Luke passage. So the, the recent pandemic... Because I'm from New York, it's not over. But when I come to Texas, it's over. So it's nice, you know. <laughs> it's a great change. And, and so, is it a sign of the end? Well, you know what they say. If it's not a sign of the end, then it's, it's like a sign of the, of the end. Okay? So wars, rumors of wars, pandemics. The Jewish people have already returned to the land. Joel Rosenberg, you know who he is? Some of you? Yeah, he writes good novels and, uh, and some good nonfiction. He just did a survey, and he asked the question, do you agree or disagree that Russia's invasion of Ukraine 
which has ignited the biggest land war in Europe since World War II, is one of the signs that Jesus spoke about in the Bible when he warned that there would be wars and rumors of wars in the last days before his, his return. And uh, Joel wrote that he was stunned by the results. So let me share the results. Have you already seen this survey? Okay, it's, it's kind of new. Came out, the results came out yesterday. Okay, so Joel said that 39.8% of Americans, not believers, Americans say they agree that the Russian invasion is a sign of biblical prophecy coming to pass in the end of days. We would regular Americans even know about that? But that's what the survey said. It was a random survey of over 1,000 people. Of course, nearly the same number, 40%, disagree, which makes me think the other part is accurate because that, that makes sense. But here's a kicker. He said almost 30% of the Jewish people surveyed say they agree too. I mean, last time I checked, most Jewish people are not reading Matthew 24. But then 70.1% of born-again Christians believe that it is a sign of the end. 70%. I'd love to do a poll by hand, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but 70%. Now, I agree with Joel's conclusion to all this. The fact that we believe it doesn't make it true. <laughs> and, and I would agree. Uh, because we're not so sure about these things. But it does awaken our interest in the end times, doesn't it? It does. Um, I just got back, <clears throat> I saw a bu bunch of it firsthand, so I, I don't know if some of you have been over in Ukraine or some of the surrounding countries, but I just got back from, from Poland uh, three days ago. And I was there for three, three and a half days and uh, met with um, Chosen People's staff is doing a lot. Um, we're ministering to the Messianic community in, the U in Ukraine. Um, chosen people over the years started a congregation in Kiev, Kharkov, uh, Maru, Mar, Maru, Marupiol. I can never get it right the first. Marup, I'll get it eventually. Don't worry. And, and Lviv. And uh, so we've started a bunch of congregations, and we currently serve a lot of these congregations. Um, but you've seen um, Mariupol. See, I got it eventually. But you saw, Mar you saw the pictures of Mariupol, 90, 95% destroyed. Nobody can live there. If they're living there, I don't know where they're living. There's no electricity, no water, no nothing. 450,000 people, maybe about 50,000 left. And the government of Ukraine has told them to get out as fast as they can. Because they're going to destroy it. And we were ministering to two Messianic congregations in Mariupol, two. And they fled. Some left the country, but a bunch of others gathered in, uh, near Lviv on the western border of Ukraine. And folks from the Kiev congregation and the Kharkov congregation, which the nice Jewish president of Ukraine uh, also told them to leave, told people to leave Kharkov too, Kharkiv, which is almost two million people. 
And so, but it's, it's way down. It's about 15% damage at least four days ago. And so a bunch of these believers fled. And so Chosen People is basically funneling money and goods. So if you've given to any appeals that Chosen People is, I, I don't know who's on our mailing list and who's not, but, but if, you've, if you have, just know that one of the things we're doing is we're renting places for them to live. We're providing them with food, with, with basic services, diapers, you name it. We're, we're provide, they have nothing. And there are a couple of hundred of them. They can't go to work. It's not like they were all poor. They weren't. They had jobs. But there's no, no place. To, they can't do their jobs. And so these are normal, regular people that just lost everything in a matter of moments. And, uh, and there are other groups, too. And there are other groups ministering to the Messianic believers there as well. But these are your brothers and sisters. You've got to pray for them. And uh, we're working at a campground in Poland, three hours north of, of uh, Warsaw. And I was up there for a day. And uh, 200 people. We picked them up on the border and brought them up. 200 people, because that's all the camp fits. And 100 of them are children. 40 of them without parents. Their parents just took them over the border, gave them to somebody, and left and went back. Because you know the men can't go with them unless you're over 62 or you have more than three children. Otherwise, you stay. And so there were, there were no men. There's no men at this campground because the elderly people can't leave because it's, it's just very difficult for them to get out. And so you have a very, very difficult situation there. And so wars and rumors of wars, we've been pretty safe, you know, in the U.S., thank God. And uh, some of us have spent more time than others in Israel. And may, maybe you've been around uh, where you've seen some stuff. I mean, what was it, about 11 or 12 people were killed in the last eight days in Israel? Um, and uh, the last one was so close to some of our Israel staff that they heard the shots. Uh, the couple lives, one of the couples live in B'nai Brock. So wars, rumors of wars, it's, it's you know, you see it all the time, but when we don't live it, it's not as real. Now, you think that some of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters are not thinking about Matthew 24, about wars and rumors and wars, and they have nothing to eat, famines, just wait, because Ukraine and Russia were the top bread producers for Europe, wheat producers. Just wait until the fall, people are saying. So you've got pandemics, you've got wars, you've got potential famine. I, you know, I'm not saying this is it, but I am saying that this is enough of it to get our attention and to start saying, whoa, these things are one day going to be happening, and we may not even know it's them. You follow what I'm saying? How are you going to know that this is really that ending period? Who, who's going to tell us? People have been wrong a lot. So uh, we need to understand that the end is going, should drive us 
to act in a certain way in the present. All right, so I just have a few moments. Let me, let me look at the text with you. So it begins with this proclamation of authority uh, uh, earlier. So in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Yeshua asserts his messianic authority to his disciples. You think they didn't know about his authority already? I mean, what new things was he showing them about his authority? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. They watched him heal. They watched him multiply food. They watched him walk on water. I mean, how much more authority could he have? He had authority over disease. He had authority over the demons. He had authority over the natural elements of life. So what do you mean all authority? What changed? Well, I'll tell you what changed. The resurrection of the dead. That's what changed. Everything changed when Yeshua rose from the dead. Listen to this. He died as the rejected king of Israel. But he rose the victorious son of God. He died and rose and then ascended as the Lord of all nations. With his resurrection, there was a dramatic pivot point, a dramatic change for a lot of things. But with his resurrection, the whole audience for the good news changed. It changed. It was now official by the resurrection of the dead that the good news needed to also go out to non-Jews. That's a big change. Some of you might be happy about that. Now, this expansion of the, of the good news should not have surprised the disciples because in Genesis 12, 3, God said to Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be, what? Blessed. Anybody, a Gentile here who's been blessed? Okay. Mazel tov. Nice to have you. It's great. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 52, which is the beginning of Isaiah 53, because as you know, there were no chapters and verses when this was written. I don't, I don't even know if Isaiah knew that it was all going to be written down, but the we read this. The Lord has bared his holy arm. By the way, that Hebrew word is zeroah. Just remember this when you sit down to the Seder, okay? The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of kol hagoyim, in the sight of all the nations. That all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 52, verse 10. So in, embedded in that glorious chapter, which talks about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Yeshua is clear information, a clear call that whatever he was doing was not just for the Jewish people, but for everyone. And then in verse 15, he says the same thing. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. That's sprinkle. Read my book. It's out there. But uh, the word sprinkle is tied to the Levitical system. 
And it's not a reference to water, it's a reference to blood. It's a metaphor for the fact that his blood would cover everybody, Jews and Gentiles. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths. By the way, that's a little tip-off too. When the Hebrew word melech is malachim, it refer, it's a plural, which means that these are multiple kings. Israel only had one king. At least they were supposed to only have one king. And every, most of the commentators would say this is a reference to the Gentile kings. Okay? Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. And so where he says, let me just get it again, where he says, all authority has been given, granted to me in heaven and on earth. It's because of the resurrection of the dead. And, the, and because he was resurrected from the dead, he now had authority over heaven, over earth, and over the Gentiles. There was a change. He always loved, God always loved the nations. I mean, John 3.16, for God so loved who? The world that he gave, I believe, in sacrifice, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, right? God always loved the nations. He chose Israel to actually be a bridge to the nations. God never chose Israel to hold the blessings to themselves. And so the resurrection is the gateway to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Why is this important? Because go therefore and make disciples of all Jewish people, right? Ah, no. No. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic process being rolled out. Go, now that I'm risen, now that I have all authority, the whole thing's changed. So here's what I want you to do. And before I ascend to the right hand of my father, I've got one last little bit of, of news for you. And that is everything you believed is now different. Here it is. Go, therefore, and disciple all nations. All nations. The inclusion of the Gentiles is a massive change of direction for the ministry of Yeshua, though it should have been expected. Earlier... When Yeshua healed a Gentile girl in Matthew 22, verses 24 through 26, we read, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's a terrible thing to say at the surface, but you have to understand the second temple uh, context to the whole thing. Later, Yeshua was, was saying this, Do not go the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But rather go to the, uh, go to the house of Israel, and you shall preach the kingdom of heaven is at, is at hand. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I'll read it. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. This now may, is making sense, isn't it? So this is the God's covenant with Abraham of using 
the Jewish people to bless the nations. So through the Bible, right? Through the first coming of the Messiah. And now through the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. Here's the problem. How could the disciples make disciples of all the nations by staying in Jerusalem? They didn't have Zoom. So how could they do it? Now, when you answer the question, how could they do it, you're actually answering the question for yourself. Because how could you do it? So how can you make disciples, how can you bring the gospel to all the nations while sitting in the chair? I love it when people say, you know, well, it's satellite communications. You know. I don't think Jesus mentioned that. Now, let's keep going. Now I'm going to go backwards. Go therefore. Seems very harmless, doesn't it? <laughs> very, very harmless. Go therefore and make disciples. It, just two words, no big deal, right? Well, it's kind of a big deal. Number one, in the Greek, it's a command. So, just so you know, in the school of Yeshua, that is not one of the electives. Okay? So go therefore. It's an imperative. And it, there's a technical reason in the Greek why it's an imperative, but don't worry about it. It is an imperative. It's a command. Now, just a little bit more. Look, I, listen to me. I pay good money for the Greek, okay? <laughs> I had six years of Greek, and it, it earned me two years, basically. I think. Maybe I got two years out of it. So. But the verb to go is a verb that is structured in a way, it's a participle, and Greek is, once you know it a little bit, it's, it's not that hard. Uh, but that's an okay translation, go, but actually it's not a great translation. It's a command, but it actually should be translated after having gone. You ever hear that before? That's really what it is. There is an assumption in the Greek grammar that the disciples would have already left. So this passage is always misused because at the end of this message, I should be saying to all of you, now some of you need to go. You need to make a decision to go and to fulfill the Great Commission. It's a mission call. You need to go. Problem is, I don't believe that. I believe that all of us have already gone. The only question is where and what do we do? So there is a presumption on the part of Yeshua that makes sense because you can't bring the gospel after this traumatic change post-resurrection. You can't bring the gospel to people of other nations because Israel was right here. And then in order to bring the gospel to other nations, you had to leave. So from the very beginning, the body of Messiah, the church, has always been 
on the move. It's the nature of who we are. Mission, I'm not talking about missions, but mission, our mission demands that we cross cultural, linguistic, and geographic boundaries at times. It demands it. This is now getting to the uncomfortable part. So once you've left, or while you're on the way, here's what you're supposed to do. Remember, the word apostle even says it all. That's a Greek word, apostello, made up of two words, which means sent one. <laughs> Catch that. You can't be an apostle. Not that all of you are trying to be one. But you can't be an apostle without understanding that you are on the move. So look at the apostles. What did the apostle Paul do? Rent a villa in, in, you know, over the Mediterranean and eat grapes. He was always on the move. Why all of the missionary journeys? He was compelled by the nature of his relationship with Yeshua, by his calling, and by the nature of the Great Commission. Therefore, Yeshua emphasized that the disciples needed to go not, it wasn't a discussion about whether or not to go, but they needed to go. It's not some separate decision. After you become a believer, then you decide to take this new calling to go somewhere and preach the gospel. You made that decision when you said yes to Yeshua. It comes with the package. And so, Yeshua is now interested in reaching a broken, dark, and sinful world. Not just Jewish people, but now Yeshua is interested in using Jewish people to reach the world, which is the progression of this redemptive plan of God, which goes through the Jewish people to the rest of the world because we are a light to the nations. So the true body of Messiah is an army of faith that is constantly advancing. You know, there, were there are times, there have been times when I've talked it over with the Lord. I didn't make much progress in my negotiations, but... There's, 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 there's been some time where I said, Lord, I love you. I really want to walk with you and so on. But why don't I always have to tell other people about you? <laughs> I mean, can't I just leave them alone? You know, and then they'll leave me alone. Um, I don't know if some of you are my media fans, but I'm a, I'm a big name now in the Jewish media. There's some new anti-missionary out there who doesn't like me. I don't know why. But they've come after me. So I've got all these newspapers. Go Google me, you know, and look for, you know, uh, missionary, uh, missionary, uh, missionary devil or something like that. You'll find, you'll find it. And, I mean, there are a lot of times where I would say, look, I'm as happy as anybody. I love my wife. I love my kids. You know, 
have a nice life. I know I live in Brooklyn, and you don't think that's possible, but, but, but it is. It is. You know, you've got too many restaurants here, and, and you have to drive to all of them. I can walk. A lot of advantages. So we have a lot of wrong thinking about what it means to do missions. We think about it as being a special calling when the Lord thinks it's everybody's calling and that we've already gone. Some of you landed in Dallas. So the Great Commission doesn't necessarily mean you have to leave your geographic area or a home. You can even decide to stay where you are if that's what the Lord wants you to do. However, number one, you can never stop talking about him. And number two, you must take some responsibility for the Great Commission, which is reaching the nations. That's what comes with the, with, with the portfolio as believers. That's what, and you can try negotiating with, with, with Yeshua too, and like me, and say, I'd like to just really leave other people alone, you know, especially my next door neighbor who's a reform rabbi. And, you know, guy, poor guy, I mean, hasn't talked to me in 30 years. I keep shoveling his snow, blowing his leaves, picking up his packages, you know. He talks to my wife for some reason, but he definitely doesn't talk to me, you know. And honestly, I don't want to talk to him. But every time I'm out there and he walks out and I walk because we're attached. We have those attached homes in Brooklyn, which I'm very grateful to have a home, but it's attached. And, you know, we sometimes come out the door at the same time. Awkward, man. <laughs> so how's your day? <clears throat> you know, he's not very communicative. Lord, okay, if I have to talk to everybody about you, could you please direct me to the open people and the nicer people? I like nice, nice people, you know? Forget about it. Yeshua makes it clear that either going or staying, the nations are our responsibility and that we are destined to speak to many people who don't want to hear it. Most of the people we're going to talk to won't want to hear it. Now, I've got good news for you in Dallas. I did some research. Do you know that you could be an overseas, quote-unquote, shlichim, Hebrew for missionary. You could be an overseas missionary by just living in Dallas. It's possible. Okay, so I did some research. So, but you have to learn Spanish. My wife's from Argentina, so I've got you all beat. No, actually, I, I understand almost everything, which is embarrassing, because when she's talking to people who speak Spanish, they know I don't speak it, which I do not, but I answer in English. I love doing that. That upsets everybody. You have a lot of uh, people who speak Spanish here. 36% are Mexican, and then 4.3% some type of Latino or Hispanic. The community of Dallas 
Thank you, Spanish people. The community of Dallas has historically been mostly white with non-Hispanic whites for 83% of the population, and this was in 1930. I don't know why they quoted that. But it goes to show that there's been a change. <laughs> I do a lot of surveys, and I always love that white non-Hispanic. And I show it to my wife, and I say, so what are you? She says, it depends on what people are offering. <laughs> so the, the city's population is, has diversified. It's grown in size and importance. And now non-Hispanic whites represent less than a third of the Dallas population. More than a quarter of Dallas people are foreign-born. Whoa. Wow. You're living with the rest of the world. The suburbs of Dallas are home to a large number of Asian Asians, Korean, Taiwanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, Thai, Indians, Pakistani, Sri Lankans, and uh, it even listed the popular surveys, uh, suburbs. Popular suburbs for Asian residents include Arlington, Irving, Flower Mound, and Garland. So all I can tell you is if you want to reach Asians with the good news of Yeshua, you can move locally. The Dallas-Fort Worth area, this one was astounding, is home to 70,000 immigrants who speak Russian and are mostly from the former Soviet Union. This includes Russians, Russian Jews, Uzbekis, and Ukrainians who would definitely take exception to the fact that they speak Russian. They would say, we speak Ukrainian. 70,000. When's the last time in Dallas you met a Russian speaker? Anybody? Okay. All right. You need to have a Varenica party or a Palmeni party. And then put out, I don't know what you need to do. But the point is, if you look for them, you'll find them. The problem is sometimes we're not looking because we're comfortable. Right? But that's not who we are. We're the uncomfortable people because we're always crossing boundaries. People say, you need to move out of your comfort zone. Friend, that's the nature of the gospel. That's the nature of the gospel. There are some Jewish people in Dallas. Um, David's Jewish. Um, you know, all know Vladimir. He's part-time in Dallas. He's Jewish. But the state of Texas has, and this is the latest figures, 176,000 Jewish people. That's a lot of people, until you compare it with where I live. But it's a lot of, it's a lot of Jewish people. I have 176,000 on my block, I think. <laughs> Seriously, we have just under a million Jewish people in the borough of Brooklyn, which is almost 30% of the population of Brooklyn. So if you like Jewish people, it's a good place to live. Or bagels, whatever your choice is. The state population has, of Jewish people has grown by 103,000 in the last 40 years. Did you know that? It's enormous growth. So that means there are a lot of Jewish people who like barbecue, and they don't like state taxes. Okay. According to the Jewish Federation, in 1988, there were 45,000 Jewish people. This is the Jewish Federation of Dallas. There were 45,000 Jewish people in Dallas which has now grown to 70,000. Coming close on, you're getting close to Atlanta. In Houston, 
because I'm going to Houston after I leave here, so I figured I'd get, it, get the numbers down. Uh, 65,000 Jewish people. So you can either stay or go. But if you stay, you've got to be intentional about reaching people who are different than you. Is that okay? Friends, that's the gospel. It's not me. No guilt trip. Well, a little bit. But that's the way it is. Now, what are we supposed to do? David said I could take two hours, which was great. <laughs> but we do three things. We make disciples. We get people to follow Yeshua like we follow Yeshua. The only way to make a disciple is to be a disciple. We baptize them, which is the gateway into the spiritual community because it's so public. You know, there's, there's, no, no, nothing, there's no such thing as a secret baptism. If you do a secret baptism or a mikvah, if you do it secretly, then you're doing it wrong. Remember, the best place to find out about what baptism's like or mikvah in the New Testament is to go to the southern steps at the temple, and you can see all around you are the mikvot. And Peter probably preached from the steps. And in Acts chapter 2, he said, be baptized. In other words, turn around and jump in. Because they were right there. So you, immersion is a gateway into your public testimony and into the spiritual community. Because no believer can grow by themselves. You've got to be part of something. And then the third thing is to teach them all that I commanded you. Well, again, the only way to teach is to lead by example. So that's the marching orders. That's what we're supposed to do. So as much as I hate to do this, I, I'm probably going to have to conclude my message. Um, may I conclude with four thoughts? Number one. The goal of our proclamation is to make disciples. The goal of our proclamation is not to just make proclamation. So in other words, Jesus wants us to take people from the beginning all the way to the end, cradle to the grave. When do you stop discipling somebody? When they die, maybe. So discipleship is a lifelong process. But that's the job description. But the commission is also assumes that we do what God's gifted us to do. So I just have one question. What has God gifted you to do? And are you doing it with people like you? And are you doing it with people who are not like you? Just a question. But God wants us to do what we can do. Second is that time is running out. I believe we're living in the last days. Israel's become a nation. Jerusalem is in Jewish hands. Israel is surrounded by enemies. The initial events of the end days, the consummation, are already taking place, and we should be motivated to be serious about the Great Commission. So if we keep the future in mind, because his promises will come true, then we'll do the right thing today. Uh, third... The future God has planned should help us reshape our presence. Present. 
Can I just read from 1 Corinthians 4? Paul says, we are fools for Messiah's sake, but we are prudent in Messiah. We're weak, but you are strong. You're very, you are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed and roughly treated. We're homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. The point Paul is trying to make is that as followers of Yeshua, we might do things that are going to look very foolish to the world. We might do some things that look very foolish to our parents. Children, you might do some things that are very foolish to your parents, and parents, you might do some things that are very foolish in front of your children, which, of course, we all do as parents often. And here's, here's what I mean. He wants us to be radicals. You know, in my role in Chosen People Ministries, I, I work with a lot of people who are uh, wanting to go into ministry full-time. And the one thing that usually keeps people from going into ministry full-time, not that I think that's the end-all to end-all, but one of the things that really keep people from going, really going all out for Yeshua, not that full-time ministry is that, but, but one of the things that really keep people from doing it is... As believers, we want to do the right thing, the responsible thing. And we want to make sure that our families are not unhappy with us. But actually, we have to lay it all on the line. So in other words, that, that great job with great income might not be what God wants you to do. You might be fulfilling other people's expectations. But the Lord wants you to serve him. Then finally, we are partners in the gospel. This is the job for the whole body, and we all work together. Chosen people and Eitz Chaim and Eitz Chaim and others, arm in arm, working together, discipling a broken and dark world to the glory of God. And more and more, because he's coming soon. Okay, listen, when you leave, you can fill out this brochure and I'll send you something good for free, okay? Just leave it on the, leave it on the table. We want, to get, want you to get our mailing onto the mailing list. It's worth it because we're Messianic Jewish Ministries and we have great stuff that's coming out all the time, like this. So the booklet, Passover, A Time for Redemption, great intro to Passover. You might want to use it. And that'll be on the book table. And the gospel and the Passover. And then the book I wrote, Isaiah 53 Explained. Uh, great book that you can give to somebody, somebody else. It's in Hebrew, Russian, Spanish, and Farsi, along with about 13 other languages. So you can, you can get that. And the way we're doing it is it'll be on the back table. And you can take everything for free. If, if we don't get paid for this, I believe we're going to make it up in volume. It's an old way of doing business. You know? So you can, you can take it. And uh, I think there's a donation there if God leads you to make one. So take something, use it for his glory, and preach the gospel to all people. Thank you.